Industry Talks is here to bring you the best and brightest in the aviation industry. We will be speaking with industry experts on a wide range of topics, from career successes to career changes. The aviation industry is on the rise, and we're here to help you navigate through these unexpected times. Whether you are entering or re-entering the workforce, this is the pilot podcast that you've been asking for. My guest for today is Alex Todd. Alex is currently the head of training of the largest aviation training organization in the Southern Hemisphere. He's been exposed to the training industry at all levels. I've known Alex personally for years, and his enthusiasm for training and his knowledge in all things aviation really shined through during this episode. For anyone looking at getting into aviation, this episode is a must. He'll be breaking down the various steps to take, mistakes to watch out for, and answers to some of the most commonly asked questions as you take your first steps from the street to the left-hand seat. This episode is directed to more people wanting to get into aviation. So if that doesn't appeal to you, or you've already been through the system, you may want to skip on to the next episode. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Alex, welcome to the show. Great to have you here, finally. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Daniel. Yeah, and I massively appreciate you taking time. I can only imagine it's a very busy schedule to you. Uh, shed some light on some typically asked questions and queries about, you know, what most people face. Um, looking getting into the industry, I don't know where to go. I don't know who to see, um, how much is it going to cost? And, uh, yeah, it's just great to have some of those questions answered today. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite a wild industry, and, and especially for someone looking at getting into aviation, there are a lot of questions that I remember that I asked around, um, and, and it was difficult to get sort of the answers that I needed. So hopefully we can get a lot of those today for future aspiring pilots. Yeah, also considering the times, yeah, it's uh, pretty sure the number of people looking at getting into the industry that have have a number of questions that they just don't have anyone to turn to or kind of ask around it. So um, yeah, let's kick off with you, Alex. So, you know, I've had the, the fortune known you for, for quite a while, um, you know, just through the industry. And uh, how did you, what was your background into getting into aviation? Well, I think I think like anyone uh, that's that that you've certainly that you've interviewed, there's been a little bit of a story, and and my story is no different. Um, my grandfather was a a RAF pilot um, during World War II. He was a Lancaster uh, bomber pathfinder, and um, and so I grew up with uh, with certainly from a young age around him talking about his 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 stories of aviation. Um, my dad wanted to be a pilot, but unfortunately during those times. His uh, eyesight wasn't good enough to become a pilot, so things have changed quite significantly now. But, but uh, a good couple of years ago, it wasn't as easy to become a pilot, certainly from the medical perspective. Um, and then I think growing growing up, sort of in my my seven eight years old, um, the the uh, the move to Port Elizabeth, where I where I'm based, where I was based at the time, we moved uh, into a house next door to a, a current uh, Nippon Airways pilot by the uh, Nippon cargo pilot by the name of Richard Brown. Um, and he was building a, a small light aircraft in his garage, and um, he would allow me every day after school pop over there and, and come and help him, which I think was fantastic. I, I don't sort of at the time realize how irritating I must have been. Um, and looking <laughs> back on it now, I don't think that I'd allow a seven, eight-year-old um, youngster to come and do the same thing. Um, but I was very grateful for that, and, and it sort of I think that really sparked um, the interest in flying, um, and and it grew from there. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's also kind of fortuitous. It's not everyone that has their neighbor building an aircraft uh, right next door to them in their garage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, no, it's great to get the history there. Um, it's just right place, right time. It's lucky to, to have someone to kind of start mentoring you into the process. Now, when did you start learning to fly? Was it something you began just, just after school or something you started, you know, before you ended school? So I was quite lucky. It, it, flying has always been something that I really wanted to do. Um, my parents wanted me to do a uni- university degree, um, you know, as a, as a good foundation before I, before I started flying. And I managed to convince them that, I, that flying was, was ultimately what I wanted to do, whether or not I did a university degree in between. Um, so they allowed me to start flying while I was still at school. So I started, started flying when I was sort of 15, 16 years old. Um, and completed my PPL while I was still at school and did a lot of the, the hour building that I needed to do while I was still at school and then finished my comm sort of at 18 years old, fresh out of school. Um, and that was a fantastic head start to, to, um, to my career. You know, if you think about a lot of, a lot of uh, pilots only starting flying when they're 18, 19 years old, some, some of them even only after degree, 22, 23 yeah. years old. So it was a fantastic opportunity for, for me to sort of leap, leap ahead um, of of people in my sort of age group and, and get a bit of a head start in aviation. So now a lot of people have different opinions on, on the way to go about this. You know, you've got your typical flying club, you've got your, your more commercialized flying schools and almost, you know, schools that operate on university level. Um, where did you actually start learning to fly? So obviously that was one of the things that, uh, and certainly we'll talk about a little bit later, but it was one of the things that I needed to be quite um, selective about is because I needed to be be able to fly um, at my own pace, you know, in the afternoons after school, the days that I didn't have sport when the weather was good, I also needed to write uh, the PPL exams. So I needed I needed a school that could fit in with, with my roster rather than me having to fit in with with their sort of roster or schedule. Um, so I did a little bit of looking around and and uh, and came across a, a flying club slash flight center in, in PE called Algoa Flying Club. Um, and as as sort of the name says, flying club. So it's it's very tailored towards that sort of environment. And, and that worked really well for me. So um, I could get hold of the instructor. I could, you know, on a daily basis and say, I'm going to be too busy today, so I can't fly today. Um, you know, I'm available in two days' time. Let's plan something then. Um, and that worked really well for me, you know, c- compared to some of the flight schools that are, you know, full-time students only, which wouldn't have worked for me because I just wouldn't have been able to commit my my free time um, to being to, to flying because I just didn't know when my free time was going to be. Yeah, well, certainly a lot to take on for someone that's still, you know, writing their, their matric year of school. How do you juggle both? Yeah, so, it, you know, it's... It, if you've got a goal in mind, so it becomes it becomes quite manageable, and you work around that. You know there are some sacrifices that have to be made. Um, I know that you know if you talk to a lot of South African youngsters, you'll know that plate rage or matric rage, wherever it is, is a big thing. And and I had to give that up to writing my last three um, CPL exams in the December sitting at PE. Um, so there were sacrifices that needed to be made, and it wasn't always easy. But it was you know if you if you if you just you you. You worked with your instructor, your flight school, and you and you, you just planned ahead well. You knew when your time was going to allow for you to get um, the flying done, get the exams done, um, and you could. You, it wasn't it wasn't quick progress, and it, and it didn't take you know a week or two to finish. It took quite a long period of time um, relative to someone that would be doing it full time. But ultimately, it it uh, it was achievable, and um, and I'm very grateful that I managed to do it like that. Okay, so it is possible, you know, someone towards the end yeah, of the yeah, school absolutely. year, provided you just put in the time, you can actually give yourself quite a good head start in your career. Absolutely, and some sacrifice. Yeah, no, naturally, yeah, I can only imagine. It's it's not like your last year of school's a, a life workload. But yeah, like you said, you've done it. It is a job. Yeah. 
it, and in fact, probably my, my matric year at school was probably um, quite limiting for my flying. You know, I think uh, I was I started when I was in grade 10. Grade 10 and 11 were fairly easy years to get the flying done. Matric was obviously a lot more intense. So sure. my last year of, of uh, school was probably um, it took a toll on the flying and it probably slowed down a little bit. But, but you know, that was life. Okay, now you've just finished, you finish a matric year, you finish a commercial pilot's license really early on. I mean, it must have been, what, 17, 18 at that stage. Um, what was the next step for you in terms of how, do you, how did you get that all-important first job in the industry? So ultimately, the, the, the fact that I'd been around the, the airport for, for two years, you know, as a, as a youngster, already um, created um, a good con- well, connections into the aviation industry. Um, I was working at the the pub um, at the flying club in the evening, so I met a lot of the guys that worked around the airfield and a lot of the, the role players in the industry. Um, and and serving them drinks, you'll be surprised at, at how how they remember you. Um, and and ultimately, so once I completed my my commercial pilot license, I'd been hanging around enough um, around the airfield to get to know some of the people, and including one of the charter companies there. So I was able to sort of get involved in the charter company there, flying a Baron. Um, when they needed, you know, dead legs to start off initially, and then charters, um, and I also at the same time I, I I saw the need to do an instructor's rating purely because the flying that I was doing at the charter company wasn't sufficient to to you know make progress or sufficient progress at least anyway. Um, and as one does, one looks you know at various different options to to move forward with the your your career. And an instructor's rating was was uh, the correct option at the time for me. Um, it wasn't something that I thought that I'd, I'd want to do, and it was more of a uh, this is my last resort sort of thing, which is a bad way to look at it. And, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But ultimately, it's what I did. And I completed my instructor's rating at a flight school across the way called Abtrack Aviation. Um, and I was lucky enough to then be offered a job a job there as an instructor afterwards. So um, working as an instructor and then, you know, in my, in my available time when there were any charters available to do, then I was doing that on the side as well. Bit of a side hustle, if we say. <laughs> you know, everyone's got to have a side hustle, especially even applies in aviation. Yeah. Um, what, what you're saying is quite interesting. You know, those formative years at the airfield, um, just being around the industry, being around people involved in the industry, kind of lends a lot of credence to that old saying, aviation, it's not about what you know. It's, it's also very much about who you know. Yeah, and you hear, you hear that a lot, you know, especially as a – as an aspiring pilot, you hear that a lot um, from from your mentors in aviation, and you don't really understand it until you've until you've seen that um, take place. Um, and it really does, you know. It's not necessarily you know getting to know people just for job opportunities, but it's 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 getting to know people that when they see an opportunity, then they've got you in mind, um, and they also give you the right guidance and the right advice to looking for the correct opportunities that are suited for you. So it, it is it plays a huge factor in your development in your early career. Yeah, so, so just being there and, and identifying those mentors to help take you through the process, the guys that have been through that industry, been through that process, you know, it's, it's something that everyone needs to have. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, you went to Abtrack Aviation. Obviously, that's where we came across each other, or alternatively, we came across each other, I think, a little bit earlier than that. Um, what, was, what was your progression after that? So I was at uh, Abtrack for for a year or two, um, and towards the end of of my time at Abtrack, um, I actually got a call from a, a Keith Patterson who started PTC, one of the founding fathers, if I can say that. Um, I was in Johannesburg at the time, and he said, 
he phoned me up, up really out of the blue and he said, um, you know, how are you doing? And have you heard the news about AppTrack? So I said, no, what news? So he said, no, no, it's not looking good. It looks like they're going to close in about a month or two. And then there was a sort of silence on the phone and I thought, sure, okay. Um, so why are you telling me? <laughs> so he, and, he, and he just said, so do you want a job? <laughs> One way so, to do it. <laughs> Which was which was very odd, but you know, of course, I sort of said, "Yeah, you know." In, in that case, absolutely, uh, I'm about to be unemployed, so what a better opportunity! And then um, he said, "The only catch is that you've got to be here tomorrow." So, and I was still sitting in Joburg at the time, and I, I phoned I phoned the boss of Abject, and I said, "Listen, I've just gotten this call." Um, he obviously he obviously knew what was coming, and um, and he said, "Absolutely, this is an opportunity that you can't miss, and you must definitely take it." So, um, yeah, I'm also grateful for that. Um, and it was a, it was once again the right opportunity at the right time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then uh, after PDC, you, currently you are fulfilling your, what is your current role? Yeah, so I'm currently the head of training at at 43A School, a, a large flight school in in South Africa. Uh, so I was at PDC for four years, and I'm going on four years now at at 43 as the head of training. Okay, fantastic, massively uh, complex job, I can imagine, but. Let's dive into, into the nitty-gritty of, of you know, what we actually had to discuss. So people looking at getting into aviation, you, know, you shed some light on how you entered into the market and some great bits of information there. But one of the big obstacles currently to people entering into the market is its finance. It's not a, exactly a, a cheap program to run. So just for people listening to the show as a ballpark, how much is one looking at putting down or investing in their career uh, if they want to enter into aviation, yeah. So maybe just taking it one step back, you know, they, I've always been told that there are three things that you need to get to get into aviation, and I suppose it's with anything actually, not necessarily only aviation, but you need aptitude, motivation, and opportunity. You know, the aptitude is the ability to actually become a pilot or an engineer or you know whatever you're going to be a doctor. The motivation is the want to do it, you know, because there's a lot of time and effort that you've got to put in, and as I said earlier, some sacrifices. And then the opportunity, whether that be financial opportunity, time, but you've got to be, you've got to, you've got to have that opportunity to go and do it. Um, and generally, you know, in, in aviation, people that that are looking at getting into aviation generally have a passion for it. It's something that they've been wanting to do since they were, you know, two or three years old, and they looked up and they saw a plane flying around, and they, you know, it sort of just sparked an interest at that age. So generally, the aptitude and and motivation, or maybe the aptitude, could still be lacking then, but. Those two are, are generally there, and, and the opportunity becomes the issue. So financing, um, and it is—it's it's an incredibly expensive um, career to get into from a training perspective. You know, once again, if you if you shop around and, and look at, at your various different options, there, there are ways to make it more affordable. But um, but ultimately, it requires a lot of money um, as a as a down payment. I mean, you're looking at in South Africa at least, you're looking at you know on the on the cheaper side of things you could be looking at 500,000 rand for a commercial pilot license i mean that would be i'd be surprised if you saw that now um yeah. anywhere anywhere over to anywhere over a million rand um and and south africa is generally one of the cheapest countries in the world to to train in yeah so it's not exactly like i said the cheapest industry to get into and you know hearing those numbers i'm sure that a lot of people are kind of disheartened um you know uh, at hearing how expensive it can actually be but you know there are solutions to this problem um for people looking at entering into aviation so they they don't have the capital to fund it themselves what are some of the avenues that they can kind of uh, follow to help them achieve this goal 
Yeah, so there are there are actually quite a couple of avenues. Um, you know, if we look out if we look outside of South Africa and to the sort of the international market, a lot of the low cost carriers um, offer cadet schemes where they'll do aptitude tests, etc., before the time, and they'll they'll select you as a pilot if you if you meet the requirements. Um, and they then they then sponsor your training, whether they pay for all of it or they they pay for a portion of it of your training, um, and and you then become bonded to them after after the completion of your training. So you go and work for them for a certain period of time, or or you or you pay it off, you know, based out based out off of a deduction in your salary over a certain period of time. So that's certainly one avenue, and, and it's a it's a great avenue to look at because it ultimately means that you've got job security for a certain uh, period of time. Um, it obviously means that you're locked in on that company for a certain period of time as well. So if you were ever looking at you know, career progression, then that's something to take into consideration. Um, it, you, you are able to leave. You then have to pay back the money. But obviously, the bond deteriorates over time, and it does eventually nullify. So you, are, you can leave, but that's generally after five, 10 years. So you're going to be with the company for a long period of time. Um, alternatively, you know, in the South African market, there, there used to be a couple of airlines, South African Express, South African Airways, who used to offer cadet schemes. Um, and they were quite successful, but those have, have slowly faded away, you know, with the with the financial crisis and the airlines that's happening in South Africa today. So those aren't really options, not that I know of any anyway in South Africa. Um, but there are various options through the government, uh, the Department of Higher Education, um, TITA is a, is a funding, the South African Civil Aviation Authority as well. They do uh, sponsorship programs. Um, they haven't been doing it recently because of COVID, but I'm fairly certain that that will pick up again, you know, once once the financial situation is, has cleared itself after COVID. Um, so there certainly are ways, and, and even going to the bank and, and getting a loan for your, you know, a student loan for your training. Um, that's also an option. Um, you obviously need to put down some form of collateral, um, you know, and you know, you'd have to talk to the bank about that. But but certainly there are there are ways ways and means of doing it if you if you're motivated enough and you go and look around. So there are banks out there that that would give you a student loan towards aviation, treating it simply as another tertiary, uh, tertiary yep. type of education. Absolutely. Okay, that's promising. Now, in lieu of a cadet program within airlines, there are also cadet programs that certain schools can offer. Can you just take us through what a typical cadet program would be like, how one would go about applying for it, and uh, what are the positives and some of the uh, other factors to consider? Yeah, so there are a lot of flight schools in South Africa that offer cadet programs as well, where you go and work for the flight school for a certain period of time. Um, you may be earning a very small salary or not earning a salary at all, but ultimately, you know, and they, they remunerate you, typically they remunerate you in, in hours, flight hours per month, you know, whether it be four or five hours a month. Um, and ultimately you go and work for a certain period of months, you know, if they give you, call it 10 hours a month and you work for 20 months, there's 200 hours, so you can get a 200-hour commercial pilot license off of that. Um and and it's it's a win-win situation certainly for for you as a as as someone that wants to get into aviation and and are looking for the funds to do it, and um, but also for the flight school because it means that that they get um, fairly cheap labor, um, and they they're also getting an employee that is interested. You know, you you you're someone that's that's learning about aviation as you go. You've got an interest in aviation rather than taking someone who has absolutely no interest in aviation and doesn't really care. So the company also gets quite a lot of of benefit out of it. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's, it's been highly successful. I mean, you work in, in the operations department, in the running of, of the bookings. Um, they may use you in the air traffic control tower, like like we do at 43 anyway as well. Um, and you basically become, in South Africa, we call it a hunt lugger. You, do, you, you become a jack of all trades and you do whatever the company needs you to do. But you learn a lot about um, aviation and, and the aviation system 
as you sort of develop yourself as well, which is which is great. You know, it's a it's an as I said, an opportunity to grow. Oh, you know, you mentioned cheap labor, and it is it is hard work. And for those out there that have gone through the cadet program, I mean, it's a massive it's a massive task, and often a very thankless task to keep everything running behind the scenes. But you know, it shows such strength of character and drive to you know help well, to achieving your goal and, and getting that commercial pilot's license. But in the same breath, Alex, it's also, you mentioned cheap labor, but in terms of what you're getting back from the school, in terms of flying hours, it's actually, you're getting remunerated quite well considering. Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it, you give up, you know, typically I think they, they three years, you know, two to three years as a cadet program. Um, and then, you know, you then, then you've built up the, the experience that you, or the hours that you need anyway to do, to do the training. So, you know, you're probably looking at a, at a three, four year program to get your commercial pilot license of, of work. But, you know, that's, that's, you start off at 18 years old and you're 22 by the time you've gotten a commercial pilot license. You know, that's, that's good going. You know, it's, it's no different to a university degree that you typically complete by, by that age anyway. Um, so it's, it's certainly an avenue and, and ultimately you, you then haven't spent a cent of your own money on your training. You know, you've had to pay for your accommodation and your food and that sort of stuff, but which is no different to, to you doing it anyway if you're paying for your own training. Yeah, and a lot of people do that through university to pay for their own funds. You know, they find other jobs that they can't do just to cover the accommodation bills and, you know, sometimes their, their training uh, or their course costs at university as well. So a lot of people have done it in a lot of other industries and it's a great opportunity in aviation if you can get one. Absolutely, yeah. Now, so you get the the money, say your folks are, are financing it or you manage to get a loan from the bank. Um, you approach different flight schools and ask you for a deposit. So what is considered a fair amount for deposit when applying to a flight school? When is, when is it just too much? Well, let's talk about the purpose of the deposit um, before we get going on, on how much is fair. You know, the, because that's also a question that I get asked quite often is why, why, why do I have to pay a deposit? Um, yeah. the, the flight school is when, when, when they, they enroll you, they're going through a lot of admin in order to do that. Um, you know, if you think about foreign students as well, they've got to go and, well, the school has got to assist in, in helping you get a student visa for you to come across. Um, and, and, you know, there's nothing stopping you, the school from, from helping you get that visa. You then um, get the visa, come across to South Africa and never even go to the flight school. You go and sell drugs on the side of the street, you know, and, and, and all the risk is then on the school, if I can say that. So that's certainly one of the reasons that, that um, flight schools put deposits down. But it's also to ensure that, you know, the, that, the student, that the student does enroll, you know, and that they, they, if they are going to um, get involved in this process and start this administrative um, trigger, if I can say that, that at least there is something that the school's making out of it. And it's not just all this paperwork for months and months and months and, and staff time that then gets you know thrown down the drain and the student decides to go to another flight school. When does a student recoup that deposit? What stage are they training? So ultimately, what ends up happening is that that deposit gets used towards your training. If you complete your training, you know, that gets used. So typically what happens is that, you know, within the last three or four hours of your training, then the deposit is used. Um, if they can see that there's completion of the training that's going to happen, or they'll keep that and they'll reimburse it at the end of the training. But if you were to breach contract um, and you were to terminate your own training whilst you were undergoing the training, you know, you wanted to move to another flight school, then um, then they, the school would retain that deposit. You know, unless there were exceptional circumstances that, you know, you lost your medical or something along those lines that, you know, it's really not your fault. It wasn't your own doing. 
Okay, so that's just to ensure that, you know, they have some skin in the game and you have some skin in the game. Like you said, you're not just going to disappear. Also, that you're committing to completing your training with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Okay, so we've got the finance, you paid your deposits. What's the next step? Well, imagine aviation medical. Yeah, so the next step is ultimately before you start flying, you need to complete an aviation medical. Um, and the, the purpose of that is the the you know you're going to be flying around um, when you start off with an instructor on board and and by yourself. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you you are being trained that you can fly around in a as a commercial pilot flying with 200 people in the back that that are trusting their lives in you. Um, and and so as a regulator, the, the Civil Aviation Authority needs to ensure that you know no likely. There's no likely chance of, of you having a medical malfunction, if I can say it like that. But, you know, that sure. you're not going to have a heart attack um, and lose control of this aircraft and kill all 200 people on board um, during the course of your flying. Now, obviously, they can't they can't do that to 100%. You know, they, they, nobody can predict when you're going to have a heart attack, but they can generally see whether or not you're healthy. Um, and they can pick up abnormalities with your hearing, your eyesight, and your heart and lungs, etc. So, ultimately, you do a, an aviation medical um, at a certain interval, but when you start, it's, you go and do an initial aviation medical, um, and that's basically to ensure that that you meet all those health requirements. So we're aiming at a what's termed a class one medical. How medically fit do you need to be to hold a class medical? I mean, you're looking at 2020 vision, perfect in hearing, or is there a little bit of of leeway for people that may be wearing glasses or have other underlying conditions? So. Initially, I mean, if you, as I said a little bit earlier, I mean, my dad couldn't fly because his eyesight was too bad. And that, that's changed significantly during the, the progression of flying. And obviously, medical improvements and advancements are still happening on a daily basis. So, you know, you, the, I, don't, I don't want to say that medical certification is becoming more relaxed, but it's certainly becoming more open to uh, different forms of medical treatment and how successful they are. So, for example, you're now able to fly using contact lenses and with glasses, so you don't have to have 20-20 vision your hearing doesn't have to be great. I mean, you can fly with hearing aids as well. Um, you know, so there are there are um, various things that you you do need. You know, you you have to have healthy heart, healthy lungs, sort of thing. Um, you can't be taking any drugs. Um, but you know, those are those are certain things that they check for in the medical. But you don't. You certainly don't have to be um, this extremely fit and healthy person. I'm certainly not. You're not, Dan. Um, but uh, but you know, we the the CIA, as I said, has to ensure that that nothing likely is going to happen to us that would result in, in the death of or, or, or worse of, um, of people. That's just about managing risk. Absolutely. Yeah. But one of the, you know, one of the commonly asked ones is a lot of people have a degree of color blindness, for example, mm -hmm. if uh, you have color blindness, that's, does that automatically disqualify you from an aviation medical and a career in aviation? So colorblindness is an odd one because you get sort of different severities of it or different deficiency, colors, color deficiencies. Um, and what they do is, you know, they test you and they, they can they can allow you to fly with some degree of it, or they can can limit limit the flying that you're allowed to do. So they may say that you are allowed to become a pilot. You can't become a, a class one medical holder. So you can become a class two medical holder, for example, which means that you can have a private pilot license, but maybe you're not allowed to fly at night. You're not allowed to fly um under instrument flight rules, you can't fly. Often they tell you that you can't fly EFIS, um, computer screen type um, aircraft instrumentation. Sure. You have to fly the old analog instrumentation. So that varies, you know, depending on, on what they find during the assessment. 
So it all depends on the severity, and of course, they need to assess that. Yeah. Now, can I go to any medical doctor and just book an aviation medical, or are there specifically qualified people that I need to book with? So the the, the CAA has a list of uh, designated aviation medical examiners. They call them dames. Um, and uh, and they're able to do it. And there are a lot of them around South Africa. I think there are 200 or something like that. I mean, I think there are five in, in Port Elizabeth. We've got one in Port Alfred as well. So there are, there are um, you know, a lot around the country. It's not someone that you're going to typically have to travel, you know, hundreds of kilometers to go and find. Um, but it, it ultimately can't be done through a stock standard GP. It's got to be done through one of these CAA-approved medical examiners. All right. So let's say I've got the money. I've got my medical, I've passed, I've had my chest x-ray, my lung function, et cetera. Now, I have the means, but nothing you mentioned is specifically aptitude. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around this particular part. Um, as a student coming out of high school, how good do your marks need to be um, if you want to do surgery in aviation? So, Dan... Interestingly enough, um, legally, there's no minimum requirements needed to become a pilot, um, certainly not in South African regulations anyway, um, other than on an integrated ATPL course. But for a, a stock standard modular CPL course, there are no requirements to have even a matric certificate, um, a, a grade nine certificate, any specific subjects or anything like that. So I mean, you really could drop out of school at, at uh, 15 years old and you could still become a highly successful pilot, theoretically anyway. Let's talk about one of the things that, in fact, often prevents people from progressing perhaps as, as quickly as they like, and that's, that's the exams. Now, you mentioned uh, the PPL and the CPL and the ATPL. Let's break down exactly uh, what a PPL is and um, what a CPL is as well. Just what are the differences between those two licenses and exams that need to be done in order to achieve those licenses? All right, so um, a PPL, a private pilot license, basically allows you to fly um, an aircraft, but not to be remunerated for it. Um, so you can fly around, you know, in your own aircraft, or you could rent an aircraft, whatever the case may be, or on a friend's aircraft, and you could fly your family around, you could fly your friends around, but nobody is allowed to remunerate you for that flying. So, you know, you could never fly for a charter operator and be paid for it. Um, a commercial pilot license allows you to, to fly around for an operator and basically to be remunerated. You're, you can now operate commercially. Um, so whether that be for a charter company or for an airline or for a flight school, you know, you can be remunerated for the flying that you're doing. Um, so those are the difference between the two licenses. Um, your next question was with regards to the exams. Well, let's talk about that the, while we're on that topic. What about the ATPL? So commercial pilot's license allows you to fly, fly uh, cargo or people for award. Um, what's the difference between an airline pilot transport license and commercial pilot's license? All right. So once you start getting to the, the larger aircraft, like the Boeing 737 and Airbus A320, they aircraft that, that are certified, um, when they're certified, they need to be operated by two pilots. Um, so, you know, the smaller aircraft that you've been talking about, the Cessnas and the Pipers, they only need one pilot in the aircraft to fly it. Um, whereas a larger aircraft that you would see, and, you know, when you're flying around um, with any airline, you'll notice that there are two aircraft, uh, or sorry, two pilots in the cockpit. That's not because the airline wants to do it. It's because the manufacturer, when certifying the aircraft, made that a requirement. Um, so ultimately, as a commercial pilot, you're allowed to fly that aircraft, but you, you can only sit in the right-hand seat. You can be a first officer. And you need to be the holder of an airline transport pilot license, an ATPL, to be the commander of an aircraft in a multi-crew environment. OK, 
okay, or a multi-crew certified aircraft, at least anyway. Okay, so if you want to command a large commercial jet aircraft, you need ATPR, essentially. Correct. So you mentioned on the integrated ATPL course, you don't have to write the PPL, CPL subjects, and then the ATPL subjects, you just write the ATPL subjects directly. Correct. Um, how many sub, how many CPL exams are there, and ATPL exams for that matter, and, and what is the kind of content that you're expected to cover? What are you actually studying in those exams? All right. So for, for the, let's start from the beginning, but for the PPL, there's seven PPL exams. Um, there are eight CPL exams and there are six ATPL exams. All right. Um, and each each of them, the, the different exams are different subjects that you cover. Um, and that really is, is the, the exams based on the entire aviation system. So you've got meteorology, which is weather, flight planning and performance. You've got sort of radio aids, air law, principles of flight, um, human factors, which is about, you know, you know your, your eyesight, your heart, et cetera. Um, and some of the illusions that you see as a pilot or you feel. Um, and so you really cover, throughout those subjects, you cover the, the broad spectrum of everything you're going to experience in aviation. Now, the question is, how much time does one need to dedicate to getting through, say, your commercial pilot's license exams? So there are, you know, I suppose how long is a piece of string? You know, it's the same, how, how much time do you need to study for your matric exams? Um, and and ultimately, what the exam is a is the CAA exam that you write is a multiple choice exam, generally of about fifty questions or so, and it's an, an online exam that you do at the CAA facility. Um, and and ultimately, what what dictates the the amount of time that you need to put in is is how well you can obviously learn it. But there are various platforms that you can also use to practice the sort of exam questions that you're going to to have when you do the CAA exams. So there are various different question banks um, that have replication of the CAA exams in their question banks. And you can then go at the end of your studying, you can go and sort of practice these exams and see where you lack understanding or there's a deficit in your knowledge in order to go and spend more time studying that material. And that's probably talking about that. That's probably an area I see students go wrong often. Instead of studying the material, they just go and study the thousands and thousands and thousands of questions that, that you may find in the question banks. And, and surprisingly enough, that will probably get you through the exam because, you know, if you've learned all the questions, you're bound to get certainly all of those in your exam. So you'll pass the exam. But what we see then is when the students then um, need to, to bring that knowledge back onto the flight line um, and, and that understanding they just don't have. So then there's this huge lack of understanding and knowledge when they get back into the aircraft. So ultimately, all the studying that they've done to pass these exams is totally pointless. Yeah, I find that kind of kind of funny in a way, there's just so many question banks and databases out there that you're probably spending as much time going and learning all the memorizing all the questions than, you know, you would have spent just learning the, the material that's really available for you oh, and passing with a very good I, understanding. More. I reckon if you were to go and learn all those questions and answers, you're probably spending close to double the time that you would if you just went and learned the work. Um, and you would then be understanding the concept behind the work as well and and you'd be able to practically apply that later on. So all you're doing actually is shooting yourself in the foot. You're wasting your own time um, and you're not getting the knowledge that you need. Do you write and fly at the same time? So do you, sorry, do you study and fly at the same time? Or do you set dedicated time on the ground, put your flying on hold um, to get through these exams? Which, which method would you recommend? And what are the risks associated with writing and uh, flying at the same time? 
All right. So the 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 exams is generally where we see students delay their training. You know, not purposefully, but ultimately a, a one year course can turn into a seven year course because of um, the students not being able to pass their exams on time. So typically that's where your training is going to be slowed down. So, you know, from, from the get-go, it's important that, that you have focus when doing your exams and, and with the, the objective of getting them done as quickly as possible. Because as we said earlier, the quicker you get the course done, the quicker you start earning a salary and, and things go up from there. Um, so whether you start, whether you, you stop flying completely and you write your exams or whether you do it together, that's really up to you. You know, the level of the, the intensity of the exams also increases as the exam license increases. So the PPL exams are fairly simple and easy. So we see a lot of students continue their flying whilst they write those exams and they generally don't have any problems. Once they get to the CPL exams, the learning material becomes quite a lot more and quite a lot more intense. Um, so we, we have seen students try and juggle that. And, and you know, a, a bright student is fairly successful with that. There are no, there are no difficulties there. Um, but it becomes a balance of, of you know, how, how much flying do I do? How much time do I need? And certain subjects are more difficult than others for some people. So, you know, if you if you are to carry on flying, it's important that you, you, you make yourself a, a good schedule and that you dedicate time to studying. Um, you know, remember that if you go into a three or four hour flight, there's, you know, two hours of prep before the time and maybe an hour debrief after the time. So that's very quickly, you know, six, seven hours of your day gone. That doesn't leave much time left for studying. Um, but, you know, some people are able to do that. So it, it comes down to, to everyone, you know, everyone um, and their own personal preferences. The CAA here in South Africa, also, if you, if you get less than 50% for an exam or you fail it on a third or subsequent attempt, the CAA gives you a two-month ban for that subject. So, you know, then they suddenly say to you, you're wasting your time, you need to go back and study. Um, and that, you know, that's, so now your, your one-year course is becoming, you know, one year, two months, one year, four months, one year, six months, and that also creates huge delays. So, you know, see, see how you go with the content. And then if you feel that, that you know, that content is, is, is requiring a lot of attention, then put your flying on hold. Um, but sorry, just before you ask the next question, you know, one thing also just to be careful of is ultimately what we also see students do is that they they put their flying on hold and they spend two years writing exams and then they haven't touched an aircraft for two years. So then once again, we go back, then there's remedial training required to get them back to the standard they were before their exams. And that also becomes costly. So it's just managing your time effectively and making sure that you, you are not just focusing on one element, but both uh, keep, your hand in, keep your hand in the game in terms of flying and uh, just making sure you're getting through those exams. Now, you mentioned something quite interesting, which I think will come as a shock to people that aren't in industry. You mentioned if less than 50%, you have to rewrite elements of, of the exams uh, after a time penalty or time period. Now, you're 50% in, in high school, uh, for some people, is uh, quite a quite a good achievement. And I think university is saying for the majority of course, 50% is considered a pass. Um, what is the pass mark or the bar they're setting for passing these exams? So every every exam, the, the pass mark is 75%. Every exam, 75%. And is there, is there a time limit to completion of all the exams, all subjects? Yeah, so, so from the from the day you pass your very first subject, you've got 18 months to complete all subjects. Okay, not all PPL and CPL. It's, you know, or if once a day you've passed your first PPL subject, you've got 18 months to complete the PPL subjects. And the same with the COM. Once you pass your first COM subject, you've got 18 months to complete your your uh, the last CPL exam and pass it. And if you don't, if you don't do that, you, then your exams expire. So then all of them become all your passes that you've got 
fade away and you have to restart all your exams again. And practically speaking, if you have to say, if you have to give an average, how much time does a student average in trying to get through these exams? You know, so we we do, I mean, they, if you're not based in Johannesburg, if you're based around South Africa, then the CIA comes to the outstations, you know, in Cape Town and Port Elizabeth and Durban, for example. Um, they come once every month, basically. I think it's once every five weeks for a week that, they, that they're there and you can write those exams. And typically we see students that, that write and pass three exams per sitting. Um, you know, so that's, you know, if you've got you know, eight exams, you could do that in, in two or three sittings, um, you know, two or three months. That's it's it's hard work. That's you know that's good studying and that's good going. Um, I've seen students write all eight exams in one sitting before and pass. Um, I've seen students write one one exam and fail, and the next sitting write one exam and fail. So yeah, it comes down to the student's performance. Uh, deeply personal thing. Once again, how much time you're willing to to dedicate to achieving it? Yeah, absolutely. Now. Your exam results, obviously you get print out of your exam results, your certificate, this is what I've got for each subject. Is that something that companies look for when, when hiring uh, potential, potential pilots? Interestingly enough, I, I've, never, I've never asked for it again. And once again, talking to um, a, lot of, a lot of airline um, sort of interviewers, it's also not something that, that they ever ask. Of. It's interesting. It's not, not something that is ever asked. Um, and I think it's I think it's the same with most jobs. I mean, I don't know how many how many candidates with university degrees when applying for their first jobs. Um, generally, they want to see that you've got the degree. I don't think that there are many employers that say, "Please, can we have a breakdown of all of your marks, you know, per subject and per semester?" Um, but uh, maybe that does happen in in other industries, but it's not generally something that happens in flying. I guess all that matters is that you've got the license and that uh, you know you've effectively completed the race. Correct. Now, before you wrap up, Alex, I just want to talk about ratings and licenses. You've broken down the, the various licenses very nicely, but you've also mentioned ratings. You mentioned night rating, instrument rating, multi-agent class rating. What exactly is a rating? So a rating is almost like a bolt-on to your license that enhances the privileges of that license. Um, so, for example, a PPL, we said you, you cannot fly for remuneration. Um, and initially, if you've got a PPL, you can only fly during good weather in the day. Um, and what you can then do is you do your night rating, which is a, uh, the rating is a bolt-on to the PPL license, which then enhances the privileges of that license, which means that you can now fly at night. Um, you know, and you can get an instrument rating, which once again, a bolt-on, and that allows you to fly in instrument conditions, instrument meteorological conditions. And um, that basically means that you can fly in the cloud, in the clear sky, in the rain, sort of in any weather conditions. So the ratings basically enhance the limitations on your license. You mentioned multi-engine class rating. Yeah, so the multi-engine class rating, ultimately when you learn to fly, you start off by learning to fly in a, in a single-engine aircraft, like a Cherokee or a, or a Cessna, like we said. And um, there's a, a required skill set um, uh, to be able to fly an aircraft with more than one engine. You know, there's some aerodynamic differences to it. There's some um, handling and workload management differences. So ultimately, you need additional training to be able to fly an aircraft with more than one engine. Um, and that then requires a multi-engine class rating. So it allows you to fly an aircraft with, with more than one engine. You mentioned that the rating enhances uh, a license. Uh, for example, night rating allows you to fly at night, et cetera. Do you need all those ratings in order to achieve a license or is it just a nice to have? 
So you don't need any ratings at all to achieve a, well, you need a single engine class rating, which you do ultimately during the course of your training um, to achieve a PPL. Then to, to, to do a CPL skills test and to be issued with a commercial pilot license, you have to have a night rating. Um, so which is generally something that's done during the course of the training anyway, but you don't need to have an instrument rating. You don't need to have a multi-engine class rating. So you can get a, a commercial pilot license basically with just a night rating, which means that you can only fly around in fair weather at day and at night. Why would someone do that though? Um, you know, you, you want to say, give yourself the best opportunity at, at getting a job. Why would someone limit themselves to a night rating commercial pilot's license? So, look, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think most pilots want to fly in an airline environment, which you think about it, they're flying in, in all weather conditions and they're flying um, aircraft with more than one engine. So, you know, they're going to need an airline pilot is going to need those additional ratings. However, they are costly. Uh, you know, multi-engine aircraft is typically flown at, uh, well, the, the cost of it per hour is generally double the rate of a, of a single-engine aircraft at training schools. Um, and and the cost of, of doing your multi-engine class rating and, and the instrument rating training at the end is, is a serious additional cost to your commercial pilot license. Now, if you've got that money to do it then, then great, you know, do it as part of the training. But often students don't have that additional um, funding to be able to complete that at the time, which is perfectly okay, you know. So rather, rather walk away with a commercial pilot license than nothing at all. Um, and then what they'll do from there is they'll do a job um, with that, that they can acquire with, with that license specifically and the ratings that they have, where they can then be remunerated and build up a reserve of funds in order to then go and pay for the additional training that they may need later on. For example, instructing. You know, when you start off as an instructor, you don't, you don't instruct in a multi-engine aircraft initially and you instruct only in good weather conditions. So you only need, a, they call it a VFR CPL. Um, and you can you can become an instructor with that. But then obviously as you progress and you want to then uh, be an instructor in bad weather conditions and in instrument conditions, then you're going to need to obtain that rating and uh, uh, instrument rating. And on a multi-engine aircraft, the same thing, you'd have to obtain a multi-engine class rating. Okay, but what about a, a TPL of any additional requirements we met there? Because we, we've mentioned Integrated HPL is commercial pilot's license with the exams. I mean, that's essentially what you're achieving at the end of the day. But what is required or what further training is required to achieve that uh, airline pilot transport license? Right. So, so you, basically, you need to obviously pass, the, once you've got a commercial pilot license, you need to pass the ATPL exams, six of them. So whether you've done an integrated ATPL course and have passed that as part of the course, or if you've done a modular route, you've got to go and write those six exams, you know, whilst you work or, or after your, the completion of your commercial pilot license. And then what you've got to go and do is you've got to go and build 1,500 hours of flight experience. There are, you know, sub-requirements of that, you know, 100 hours of PIC nighttime, 75 hours of instrument time, et cetera. But ultimately, then once you've achieved those requirements and you've passed all of the exams, you can then do an ATPL skills test um, with a, a CAA examiner. And uh, if you're successful there, then you get issued with an, an ATPL license, which, which, as we said earlier, means that you can command a multi-pilot aircraft. Yeah, but that's something that's, that's realistically only going to happen much later on in your career, depending on the, the path you're going to follow. Yeah, correct. You, you know, to be a captain of, a, of, a, of an airliner 737 or an A320 is going to take you a couple of years to go and do in an airline environment, you know. So it's, it's not something that you necessarily need to do straight out of flight school and, and while you're instructing uh, Alex, typical time to complete a commercial pilot license. Say you're a very dedicated student out of school, you've put the money up, you're going an integrated ATPL or dedicated uh, modulus uh, commercial pilot license. What time are you looking at in order to complete the course? 
anywhere from from sort of one to two years. Um, integrated ATPL obviously can be done a lot quicker. It's, it's a full time course, um, and it's less hours, more intense. Um, you don't have to write all of these exams, so obviously you can save quite a lot of time and cost there. So that could be done easily in in a year to sort of eighteen months. A modular modular CPL, you know, takes a little bit longer, probably eighteen months, maybe to two years, maybe a little bit longer than that, depending on the pace and and if you're doing it full time or part time. Okay. And lastly, before we wrap up, Alex, given all of this, how long until you start making return on this investment once you complete your commercial pilot's license? So, you know, the, if you're looking at, if you start off, you start off with the 18 years old um, and you're going, let's say it does, it takes, you've got the, the funding to do this, you know, whether it be through the bank, through your, your sponsor, um, and you're going, you're going to complete this in, in two years. Um, you know, you're 20 years old, you're going to start earning money on top of that, even if you know, be, become an instructor, you become a charter pilot, you probably won't be earning sufficient money to cover your lifestyle and to be, you know, accommodation and food and transport, etc., and to be able to pay back uh, any form of bond. But, you know, probably within, you know, once you start looking at, at maybe more uh, contract flying or, or some charter flying, and once you get into the airline, you know, so you're probably looking at, at you know, maybe four or five years after from the day you've started your training before you're realistically able to start making meaningful contributions back towards, you know, a bond or, or, a, or a payment um, provider if, if, that were, if that were needed, which is not, no. not bad going. You know, you, you think, once again, a university degree, you know, you start off when you're 18 years old and it's four years, maybe with a master's, it's five years, you know, you're 23, 24 years old before you're even looking at earning any any money from the career that you've chosen. Whereas in aviation, you know, you could be 20 years old and and earning not not huge amounts of money, but certainly earning earning a good enough living to cover your expenses at 20. Awesome. Alex, thanks, thanks uh, very much for all of that and all the information insight provided uh, for anyone looking at entering into the industry. You know, know from my experiences, uh, having someone to mentor you and and just lend some insight into the process can save you a lot of trouble um, and, uh, you know, help you ultimately achieve that goal a lot more sooner, a lot more effectively and build those those networks to achieving that all-important first job. So thanks for the insight and massively appreciate it. It's been great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. It's been great being here and I hope, hope that I've helped a lot of young aspiring pilots and answering some of the questions that they've they've been faced with or that I'm sure they will be faced with. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to have to have you back for part two. You're listening to PTC Industry Talks. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing you new episodes weekly.